The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice will be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any index ventures fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Our guest today is Mark Ferrentino, partner at Index Ventures. Founded in 1996, Index Ventures is a global venture capital firm with offices in San Francisco, New York City, and London. Index Ventures has previously invested in prominent fintech companies such as Audium, Plaid, and Robinhood. As part of the early members of the San Francisco team, Mark is focused largely on fintech and application SaaS. He's especially interested in fintech infrastructure, verticalized payment workflows, and SaaS tools disrupting legacy incumbents. In today's episode, we discuss Mark's journey into fintech and venture investing, his investment philosophy for companies in different stages, and his advice for founders in the period of volatility. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Warren Fintech Podcast. Hey, Zoe. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. Excited to chat a little bit more about fintech. Every, all everything and everything fintech. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I'm sure you've done a lot of these, so I, I feel like we're going to have a great conversation. Um, maybe just to start with, curious to hear a little bit about your story, what brought you to fintech, and what brought you to venture investing specifically. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with... Uh... I'll start with the the why fintech and what brought me here. So I think there are two very distinct paths. One, um, the easy the easy one is sort of the you know, career path wise, right? So I started out at uh, did a couple years at Goldman on the IBD team there in San Francisco. Uh, was in late stage private equity for a couple years at a uh, mid market P for about also out here in San Francisco GI Partners, and then uh, actually. You know, after after a couple of years, I was kind of like, oh, I want to try almost the exact opposite of, of what I'm doing now, and that ended up being joining some random early stage startup, it happened to be called Stripe. Um, and you know, it, it was interesting because I had a high level the- thesis around card not card present to card not present growth of ecom, but I think sometimes it's just better to be lucky than good. And Stripe was really the right time, right place, right team, and uh, I was lucky enough to join as one of the very early business hires there. Um, and got to work across kind of credit underwriting, sales support ops, finance, accounting. You know, it was a variety of pretty much lot, all the things the engineers didn't want to do was sort of like what I got to do in the early days. Um, and it was a, it was a great experience. So I think that's the that's sort of the business side of the world. I think from a personal perspective too, I have a separate sort of what interested me in fintech story. So you know my my parents uh, got divorced at a young age, or I, I was young when they got divorced. They you know, remarried several times each. We we kind of bounced around in a lot of different apartments growing up. Uh, maybe weren't the most financially sound, and so seeing a lot of these interesting things like cash flow constraints on rent and difficulty sharing joint accounts. You know, let's say for like a doctor bill for me or my sister, my parents wanted to split that. It was extremely difficult for them to sort of figure out how to split that bill, um, track who was paying for what, et cetera. And then you know, getting to college, you have a lot of student loans, debts, grants. How do you figure out how to pay all these things off? Where you know can someone compile all the different grants for me so I could figure out what to apply to and whatnot? There's a lot of room for optimization around consumer betterment or you know betterment of one's life around fintech too. So I'd say there's that's the 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 kind of personal 
side of it as well. So both of those things sort of brought me to to the fintech side of the world. And then maybe to, to round out your question, how did I get to index? Um, I was just, after I was at Stripe for about four years. Um, someone I actually used to work with way back when at Goldman happened to be at Index at the time uh, called me up and said, "Hey, we were looking for someone to help uh, sort of work on a lot of fintech investing here." Um, you know, you obviously have relevant experience. Why don't you come meet the team? And you know, the rest is sort of history after that. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Curious, like when you were at Goldman and in a, a private equity, was it more a journalist role? And then when you jumped to Stripe, was it more just coming from, like you said, like I want to get on more on the operational side? Let me see what are the opportunities out there. Or did you form a specific thesis in fintech when you were at a private equity? Yeah, it's a great question. So the on the banking side, the the irony behind it all is that. So we at Goldman, there were two teams in San Francisco. There was the uh, the the TMT team, uh, so anything and everything tech, and then there was the WRA team, which stood for West Region Advisory. That was literally just you could literally call it everything that was not technology. And I happened yeah, to be the on, other bucket. Yes, the other bucket. And and the funny part is actually I was on that team. So I, you know, I I was sort of this rebellious. You know, I tend to be this rebellious by nature person. I said, Oh, I'm in San Francisco. Everyone's working in tech. I kind of want to do the opposite because. I don't want to just be in tech because I'm in San Francisco. I want to make sure I'm actually interested in that. So I spent my first couple of years working on everything from, you know, like real estate investment, trust, debt financings. Like I did, a, I helped with a debt financing down in LA for for Fender, the guitar company. I was taking trips to Spokane, Washington to work on these paper forest product timber companies up there. So it was fun to see just a variety of very different business models um and and how you know sort of the the rest of the world outside of tech thought about business which actually i think helps me a lot in what i look at today when it comes to kind of like supply chain logistics tech companies or other vertical SaaS and more archaic industries whether it's a kind of fintech for construction or whatever it happens to be not that wasn't necessarily planned but that's um the the irony behind it all is i actually spent a lot of time non-tech and then on the private equity side spent more time doing kind of traditional SaaS leverage buyouts um and and kind of worked on a lot of variety of things there probably more on the vertical SaaS side than the than fintech itself um honestly when i was at ba it's all i don't even know if the term fintech wasn't really as much of a thing either um so like it was it was more of that but i think there, there were these kind of green shoots of you know growth in econ you know online payments uh you know better ways to do ACH, vertical SaaS companies that were looking to get into the payment flow in the first place. So you saw the green shoots of a lot of what we're seeing now and having that played out, you know, we're probably about nine, almost nine years from when I was in PE. But I, I think you started to see the early innings there. There just weren't a name for a lot of these things. Like embedded fintech was not a was not it was not like a term yet or anything like that. But you started to see the 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 sort of like the uh the themes moving in that direction. Gotcha. It is fascinating to learn more about your personal story and how your family's journey of navigating the consumer fintech landscape has inspired you to join fintech. Curious, when you actually made this switch, why did you choose a company like Stripe, which is focused on the enterprise side rather than a consumer fintech company such as Robinhood? Yeah, it's a it's a great call. I think this this one really came down to the the people. I'd say so. You know, I I want to do something in fintech. I think, but I think you know the the sort of like to get past thematic. It was I think a conversation I had with both. Uh, it was Will Gabrick, who was the CFO at the time, or or just about to start as the CFO, and then the 
And then of course, Patrick and John themselves meeting them throughout the process. It was very clear to me that everyone from the leadership team to the senior engineering team to some of the folks on on product, finance, et cetera, were incredibly intellectually curious. And even though maybe it was a boring topic on the surface, like, oh yeah, B2B, B2C payments for marketplaces and e-com companies, there's so much interesting complexity to the problem in terms of how you had to work with financial partners, like your your acquiring partners, like a Wells Fargo, the other Visa MasterCard, your relationship there. Uh, how do you think about credit and fraud risk in this space? You, know, you have a pretty complex business model that's you know a take rate on top of a financial transaction, and how do you justify you know why three percent versus one and a half percent versus five percent, right? And so starting to think through all these different complex problems and the fact that everyone was so motivated to you know kind of peel back the onion in a way, I think it, I think it really came down to that versus sort of me having to be on consumer versus infrastructure. Yeah, makes sense. I think everyone, when we first started, like for me, for example, when I first started my career, I naturally got drawn more onto the consumer side because it's closer to me, it's more tangible. But as time goes along, I find like more, the, the things that are invisible, the infrastructure actually are more exciting the more you learn about them and really empowers like what are the applications is actually possible for consumers. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you join Index uh, Ventures after your time at uh, Stripe. Curious to hear like, I know like in one of the previous interviews you mentioned like you really like Index is because it's stage agnostic um, and everyone is super driven and very like intellectually curious. Um, just wondering what's what aspect do you like about stage agnostic investing? Because some people might say it's it's even harder to do stage agnostic because <laughs> yes. you got to do everything. Yep, yep. I, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's it's easy or that it doesn't come with its own set of. There are pros and cons to every way you set up. Right? There, there's a reason why a lot of firms set up have a they separate a venture and a growth team because naturally there's an opportunity cost, and I'll get to that in a second. So I'll start with the what I like, what I love about it. So. A, you get to maintain, you know, I'm a people person when it comes to working with founders at, at heart. And I think maintaining a strong relationship with that founder is something that I did not want to have to either sacrifice or make awkward in any way, shape or form. And I think the nice part about having no restrictions on stage is that you avoid the difficult sort of, hey, we, you know, maybe we pass on your series A, therefore you know, I'm not allowed to talk to you and you're actually going to have to go talk to my colleague on the growth team now. So please establish a new relationship, even though we've been chatting over the last, you know, 12 to 16 months, getting to know one another. It's a, it's a tough conversation to have because it almost does you a disservice because the relationship you've built over time is sort of has to, it has to start from scratch with someone else and someone that's new. So that, that's, of course, there's ways to thread that needle, but it's not as binary as I'm probably making it sound, but it is a difficult sort of situation. I've heard direct founder feedback that can be quite awkward for them. So I'm glad we don't have to deal with that. I think for me that that was an important sort of piece of, of choosing index as a decision. Um, the, you know, I think the other beauty of it is that you don't need to feel this artificial pressure. Like let's say you like a theme, right? So I'll, I'll contrast two different things. So one is, you know, uh, you know, we're investors in a company called revenue cat. It's in the mobile subscriptions, almost like the CRM for these mobile app companies, uh, from that perspective. And, you know, in that, in that case, 
we were pretty confident it's a winner takes most category. And it was very clear, at least to us, at the, at the Series A, that this company revenue kind of sort of the emerging winner in that category. We wanted to be in them as early as possible. Um, so that was more of a straightforward decision. Now, if you contrast that against, um, let's talk about like maybe the, this new wave of kind of Anaplan 2.0 FP&A tools, or there's a whole, there's a subset of these kind of meter billing software. So think of like Metronome, Orb, and a few other ones in that space. I think there are a lot of strong teams and both you could make an argument are compelling categories, but at least for you know, obviously our opinion, it might have been a little bit more difficult to separate who has sort of the novel wedge, the 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 appropriate lead, et cetera, in some of these categories. So in this case, we chose in both opportunities to sort of sit back and kind of wait to see how this plays out. And we'd rather be able to back maybe a winner at an obviously a more costly valuation, but in the growth stage. And at that point, maybe the risk reward makes more sense, at least based on our analysis. So I think the the point being, who knows if we're wrong or right about sitting back in those categories, but we at least have the opportunity to sit back and we don't feel pressure to deploy out of our venture fund because we're missing a theme that we feel strongly about. Gotcha. And then speaking of awkward conversation, like sure. when there's a theme, you feel like you want to sit back and clearly there's a lot of players and it's just market feels noisy. How, how do you have that conversation about, okay, we want to actually wait and see how you do? Like, do, are you in the camp of like, we're going to provide you feedback, say like, if you reach this target next round, we're going to invest in you guys. Or like, what is your general approach there? Yes, we try. I mean, I, maybe this answer differs by by person, but I tend to be a very straight shooter. So if we're passing, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. I'm going to say, hey, here's what we love about your business. Here's where we still have question marks. And those question marks could be around competitive landscape, right? It could be, hey, it's it's unclear exactly how you're winning in your own ICP when you know, you're know you losing 50% of the time against a competitor and it's for the same reason. And it just seems like sort of like a coin toss as to how you win a deal or how you don't. That, that to me is not, you, there needs to be a little bit more of a tangible product market fit to that. Um, so that, you know, that's just one example of many, but what I'll, what I'll typically do in these cases, we've done, we'll do a good amount of work on some of these types of deals. Let's say we'll talk to 10 different either customers or potential customers. So in addition to saying like, Hey, here's the reasons we are not quite ready to put money into you now. Uh, we're actually still excited about a variety of these other things. Here's some feedback we got from your actual customers or customers you potentially could work with. And we'll even still make intros to companies we passed on. So I think it's all, you kind of mentioned this before, but it's all about relationship and spending as much time on a company you love that ends up being a pass at this round will pay dividends in the future. Even if it feels like it might take up a lot of time or the day, and you have a, a bunch of stuff going on. It's never worth burning that bridge. So I think I always give advice to new investors coming in, you know, the companies you really like, and you're, you're going to pass on a lot of companies and a large subset of those companies you'll like, you'll, you'll feel pretty strongly positively about, um, take the time to craft a good pass note, uh, offer them something in return because it's going to pay dividends in the future. Yeah. Venture capital is such a, like, um, relationship driven business. And then the circle, the world is so small, surprisingly, given how realistically the, how big the world is. Um, and then the other aspect, I totally agree. You just never feel like you have enough time one day to do everything you want to do and go through the laundry list. Yes. Um, but curious, you like what you just mentioned, like it's, I, I feel like if I'm a founder, I would find it truly like valuable to have not just the reason why VC thinks it, this might not work, but some of the feedback from customers. 
um, over the last like 10 years or so, like venture capital has grown so much and now it's getting super competitive. Um, capital, some people say it's not even like competitive energy anymore. It's more a commodity. Um, how, how do you guys at index think about differentiate yourself amounts like other venture capitalists? Uh, is, is it because I know like you guys pride on like working directly with founders and helping them. So just want to dig a little bit deeper there. Yeah. So one of the reasons this maybe ties a little bit into the the question we just talked about too. So one reason we choose to stay uh, stage agnostic from a investing team perspective is because we try to leverage that into being a little bit more focused on domain expertise. Um, and, and with that said, no one is pigeonholed into one industry. And I think we actually do a pretty good job of saying, hey, if you feel strongly about a team and a theme and you've done the work, you know, go ahead and do a deal in whatever space you want. That is essential. But I think one of the bigger differentiators for us is that at least maybe three quarters of our time are spent in the industries we know well. Um, so for me, I spend, let's call it 70, 75% of my time in everything that you could consider fintech. Uh, I do a lot in supply chain logistics, procurement, and other vertical SaaS and specific pockets of application SaaS and uh, um, unsurprisingly tied to the teams I worked closely with at Stripe. So that was sort of risk, sales, support, and the finance suite. So I'll, I'll look particularly at those four subsectors of application SaaS. And I think that way it keeps it a little bit more cohesive and tight. So it creates like, I guess maybe said differently, it creates this sort of network density where I can provide unique differentiated value for portfolio companies in those specific sectors that other venture firms might not if you're too broad, too horizontal, too generalist. So maybe I'll give a, I'll give a tangible example to make this less abstract. So I was just in New York actually this past Monday through Wednesday and, um, you know, I often, especially my fintech portfolio, get asked about you know, hey, what are the best practices for sort of credit and risk decisioning? How do we think about spinning up and building that team more going from zero to one? Or, hey, maybe, you know, we're a series A business and we, we, we just suddenly got hit with a few losses and we're just learning what works for us. How do we think about building a little bit more structure? What are the best third-party tools to use? What profiles should we hire for? So when I, I took the opportunity to be in New York, uh, you know, kind of co-hosted with a lot of our portfolio companies, a, uh, a dinner with some of New York's best credit officers. So like we had the, you know, chief, Chief Credit Officer at Brex, we had uh, a representative from Plaid, some from Mercury, Tactile, and so on and so forth, about 10 to 12 people. And the idea was that, hey, let's just get some of the, all the the Chief Credit Officers in a room at dinner, trade ideas in the space and how to, you know, like different topics, right? Like how to underwrite in a crisis. What are the interesting applications for ML models in, in both B2B and B2C underwriting? What's the impact of upcoming regular, you know, upcoming economic regulation, et cetera? And so now, not only can you tap into you know this network of experienced risk officers when your portfolio company asks or needs help, but I personally can now share best practices, both from my own experience at Stripe and the experience of some of the experts around the table and the anecdotes they told. So that's a that's a that's a great way of how we try to sort of differentiate ourselves from that kind of domain expertise perspective. Gotcha. I'm glad you shared that example right away because that was going to be my follow-up <laughs> question. So that was super helpful. Great. And I, you mentioned New York. Um, I know you guys recently opened an office in New York. Congrats on that. Um, many people say now like New York City is going to be the next hub for fintech because as you said, the incumbents are there. A lot of the customers are there. Um, I know you are based in SF. So what is your view on 
New York becoming the next um, hub. Are you going to move soon? Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's why I should. Um, I, I always like to have this lively sort of debate with you. Know, it's like we should get one of my New York City partners on the phone with me, and we can have sort of this. Uh, we can hash out the SF versus New York fintech debate. Uh, uh, Fight live. it out, you yeah, know, exactly, in the ring, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that would be so. I, you know, joking aside, I, I guess my answer is probably somewhere, somewhere in between. Like, I obviously can't sit here and tell you, hey, no, San Francisco is the best. There's not as much happening in New York. I was literally just there two days ago to do some of the stuff I had alluded to. So I, I think the answer is if you are a fintech investor, having a presence in New York City is extremely helpful. And, you know, what I'll say is actually before we opened, so we opened up our New York office, uh, maybe it's probably over, maybe slightly over a year ago at this point. Um, and, you know, I was always, I was probably since 2019, I've been going there probably once every about six weeks or so. So I, I've always sort of personally made a point to be there because I do think New York does have a strong hub of fintech innovation and 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 one that's continuing to grow. I think that is true. Um, and, and it's not that surprising, right? Because it's like New York has been a stalwart for the traditional finance side for a very long time, right? Whether it's pick any of the large, you know, pick your favorite large bank, many of their HQs are there. American Express itself is there. So many large carriers and reinsurers are there. So it it is, you know, unsurprising a lot of people with that level of expertise that might want to start companies have been in our in New York. And then of course Ramp is the great example of a sort of a tech startup that grew up there as well. And we're in, and we're already starting to see a lot of interesting startups come out of Ramp itself now with some of the talent they have there. So it, you have to believe that New York is special when it comes to FinTech. But with that said, I think the you know, what I like to say is sort of San Francisco in a lot of ways has been slept on. And, you know, you still have to remember that actually when you really kind of take a step back and go, where is a lot of innovation on today? Like my biggest fintech deal this year was a San Francisco, Chicago based company, uh, sort of split its HQ between the two with an ex Uber freight team that were all based in, you know, both of those geographies. Um, you still have most of the big names in fintech are still here, right? It's like Stripe, Block, Robinhood, Plaid, and so forth. And then, even the generation before that, like PayPal. So you still have a higher density degree of fintech talent based in San Francisco. And I think, I think it's, it's uh, with New York, it's a lot of it, it's, it's growing, right? So I think the acceleration and the growth is what's sort of put people's radar, what put it on people's radar. But San Francisco from an aggregate sort of I guess, company startup base is still sort of the, the place to be. Um, and it, but I, I love to, I love to hammer this point, but it's like where there's, you know, if New York City has the buzz right now, you always throw that where there's buzz and hype. You know, usually the reciprocal is where you find the interestingly value. You know, our job is being investors, not being where the hype is. And when you have to take kind of valuation or opportunity into account, um, you often want to go where there is less buzz. So that actually makes it interesting from an investing standpoint in San Francisco as well. Sounds like you're gonna have a lot of a uh, coast to coast flights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of miles. <laughs> I've definitely built up a lot of miles over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's awesome. Um, I want to switch probably focus a little bit more on your like your own investment philosophy a little bit. Um, curious if you can share with us what is your overall investment philosophy in a nutshell. Do you have some kind of mental model when it comes to investment? Best way to distill this down would be. Uh, you know, don't take this as gospel, please. It's sort of spitballing on this, but I'll almost I'll break this down maybe by stage, or at least this is one way I look at it is sort of like what is my mental model at different stages. Um, so at seed, it's definitely all about the entrepreneur. Like if I had to, if I had to kind of wave my hand, you know, or sort of like hand in the air, estimate this, I'd say 
70, maybe if not 80% of what I'm underwriting at Seed is is the entrepreneur, the founder market fit, what drives that founder and why why were they sort of like born on this earth to build in this space? Um, that that to me is maybe the most important part of it. Then the other 20, 30% is going to be, yes, it still has to be an interesting idea in a, in a market that makes sense Have we validated the pain point. But that to me is almost secondary at that stage. Um, series A is sort of this, it's the natural in between, right? So it's sort of, I, you want to see a product that is in the hands of a few very adamantly happy users, you know, does the early usage and engagement metrics sort of point that this is a very much a need to have versus a nice to have product? Um, I, unless, you know, a lot of, a lot of people go like, Oh, what revenue do you need to see us at to do a series A? I'm like, I don't care revenue to me. Revenue is at, at that stage is an output. What I really care about is the the input side, and then that again goes back to these kind of engagement metrics. You know how prolific is usage? Has this expanded within certain companies depending on the use case? And so I, I think you know it, what what I'm looking for is this is this product like the lifeblood of some function within a business. That's I'm looking for all of those indicators. Um, then then when you get into the growth round, so let's call it Series B and up. Yes, the 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 sort of output metrics do start to matter a little bit more. So I want to know a bottoms up is the machine working right so if i put a dollar of sales into this business what does it yield me if i put a dollar into marketing what does that yield me um top down is it clear that this is likely going to going to be or, or or is a category winner um and then ultimately are we comfortable with the with what we think the kind of base case market size is and so you get a little bit more formulaic and framework oriented as you go up growth unsurprisingly got it um, I guess does this because you do a lot of I know you do a lot of follow on investment and you try to engage some of the like you said if you see this clear category a winner you try to engage with them early does this model slightly change if you engage with a specific founder early on do you go through the exact same thinking as you do every round with them so to to clarify are, are you asking if we actually invest in a founder at the C to the Series A stage, when we're then reevaluating for a double down in growth, does the framework change? I just want to make sure I'm answering it right. Exactly, you got it. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, largely yes, to be honest, because I think in a lot of cases, and, and maybe I'll give an example here too. When we, you know, you have this, you know, let's say I'm sponsoring a deal, and I do do the C or the A. Uh, I, I want to see that same set of criteria at the series being up to make sure it's working because we have to we have to remain objective, right? Like our job isn't to sort of get emotionally tied to a business or a founder we work with. At the end of the day, it is still business. And what one function of that is, you know, bring in some of your own. I'll bring in up that. Let's say I let a seat deal. We someone else led the series A. We own ten percent. We're now evaluating. You know, do we want to co-lead the series B? to build our ownership from 10% to 15%. Like this is a very, this happens quite often for us. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to loop in at least one, if not two other partners of mine that have probably spent a lot less or almost have never, maybe even potentially never met the founder of this business. And they'll give me sort of a fresh perspective. So I can sort of almost remove my bias from, hey, I've seen two, three years of this, whether that bias be positive or negative. Um, you know, you you can just focus on the fundamentals of the business, and is this sort of a category leader? Or what do the metrics look like, et cetera? And that's a good way to sort of combat that I know too much scenario. I totally agree with you. I think sometimes when you're on a deal, you just get tunnel visioned a little bit sure. at the end, like when you know a lot when 
you kind of start to like see more the detail sometimes and you forget about the big picture. Um, so it's good to know like you guys are kind of going through a, like a incorporating more stakeholders into the process sounds like. Yep. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like one other thing I really like about your way of investing is you always come back to the fundamentals. Like I feel like last time when we caught up, you, you talked about, you know, in 2021, we were using all the same multiples to evaluate every single type of fintech companies, uh, which is a little bit of in the crazy land. Um, like, I, but like, you know, venture capital is such an industry where it's like easily to get caught up on hype. And it's, it's such a industry where you sometimes feel FOMO when there's a lot of things going on. So how do you keep yourself accountable? Say like always coming back to fundamentals and then come up with a point of view with valuation. I think one key part is what you had alluded to, which was the maybe 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 to make it more, I would say quality of revenue assessment is a good way to put it, or type of business model combined with quality of revenue is always very important to take into account. And I think as you were alluding to, one of the biggest challenges we saw in fintech in particular, because you know, unlike traditional B two B SaaS, where you're likely always going to see some sort of a business that's either a flat SaaS fee or maybe SaaS fee plus overages, maybe a unit-based sort of meter billing in today's day and age, but they're still a little bit less common, like some form of that. It's kind of easier to evaluate. When it comes to fintech stuff, you get everything from a lending-based revenue business model, which fundamentally implies very tight gross margins, to a you know SaaS business model at 80% gross margins combined with interchange revenue, to something in between that's maybe just payments focused. So you have to be very careful and cognizant of, you know, what type of revenue you're seeing, how ephemeral or recurring that revenue will truly be, even in an up or down market. And and then ultimately, what is the margin profile and contribution margin profile of that type of revenue? And I think that's what we're really pushing. Anyone else that at Index that looks at fintech, that's that's sort of what I like to push them on is, you know, what you know, oh, I'm, I see a company that goes that went from one mil to four mil this year and they're growing fat, you know. That that's great, but you have to then break down like what does the margin profile look like? What does burn ratio look like? You know, it, it, ultimately, are they a balance sheet business or not a balance sheet business? Uh, it, those types of questions matter just as much as aggregate growth and trajectory. Got it. That makes sense. And then there's another way of thinking. It almost I've heard it from like other investors is like in fintech, there are some companies that are providing like a digitized experience for some of like more traditional business like lending, they 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 just provide a digital experience now, but it, the business model is fundamentally the same. Whereas some others, they are like fundamentally trying to disrupt the business or the value chain because of technology. Um, are you? I guess it's just hard to hard to see when it's early. So like like you said, like well, especially when it's early. For example, like a seed pre seed stage companies. When they don't have that many, probably much revenue yet, how do you make a differentiation at that point? Yeah, I think this goes back to kind of what I was saying before on the on seed in particular. This is why it has to be people founder oriented because I guess we'll come in with a prepared mind. Like I said, about the thirty percent that's going to be thematic or pain point oriented. Let me let me start there because so to kind of give you a different flavor, a different answer. The um, you know. What I'll do is I'll go, okay, even if your product doesn't yet exist because you're a seed stage business with a PowerPoint presentation and we're trying to believe in an idea, um, 
there are still interesting ways to test, um, you know, all the constituents in the value chain you're trying to go after. Is the pull real, right? Like that's an important question because unfortunately we see a lot of seed stage businesses where I think the founding team has sort of fell in love with a problem, but A, either that problem is more of a nice to have, not a need to have, and the pull's not as strong as you would want it to be, or B, the the problem is too niche, I should say. And what I mean by niche is that maybe, you know, you see, maybe I experienced this problem at Stripe, a, high, a hyper high growth fintech company where things would break when we were trying to scale country by country and we needed to adopt a bunch of different acquirers to help us. I don't know if 90% of the rest of the market might actually have that same issue or not, but I'm over anchoring on the one problem I had at the one business I was at. Uh, you know, so it's sort of testing. Uh, those are some of the, I guess, like the the frameworks I'll try to test, you know, the ubiquity of the problem, uh, uh, pull for the problem and things like that. That's that's one good way to look at it at the early stages. Got it. Yeah, I think that's the commonly like the challenge with like early stage investors, like how you actually know, like you're trying to predict the future almost. Yep. So I think having those factors they can draw upon is like really helpful as you're thinking through like a specific company if if they will be successful down the road. Yep. Yeah. And I know like you you've spent a lot of time in like vertical SaaS and you um from you like your both private equity time and now your time at uh index. Um and I know you invest in companies like Mercantile or like Loop, which is like super vertical SaaS focused company. Um do you is this still like one of the like the trends or like investment thesis you're most passionate about and then if there are like any other areas that you are passionate about these days. Yeah, no. So I, I'd say we also uh, loop in particular that I just want to talk about. So that was the, it's actually the the kind of one deal I've done uh, this year that we got super excited about that was uh, larger than a seed deal. And the, you know, it's super interesting about that space is, you know, vertical size is tricky because sometimes you find a category where there is a true pain point. As a founder, you can build an interesting business and have a have a great outcome, but from a venture backable scale might not be there. And that's maybe the one thing you need to be the most careful of in, in that space. But I think what's super interesting about Loop, right, is is um I think one thing we had uh talked about maybe the last time we saw each other was this this concept of like, can I buy a derivative on a specific industry that's massive and growing? And I think one of the, I think what got me interested is there's, you know, if you look at freight logistics spend in the US and just in the US alone, it's, this can be isolated to serve more trucking rather than just, you know, when you're putting aside ocean and, and air freight, which in and of themselves are kind of interesting. Um, there's such a large addressable and fragmented market. So there's probably $900 billion plus at this point of freight revenue exchanging hands. That was in 2021. And this is growing in the teens, if not 20%. That was year over year. There are some, let's call it 4 million addressable shippers. Um, so these are the people that send goods from point A to point B to point C. So whether I'm like Under Armour and I'm sending my clothes to a retailer or a direct to a consumer, or I'm a, so like a tire manufacturer, that, think of that that's a shipper. Um, there are 4 million of them. And then there's about 600,000 freight forwarders and trucking companies so you call them the carriers and then they're at about another twenty thousand three pls so again more carriers and that's just in the u.s so there is a lot of fragmentation a lot of money flowing this ecosystem and we wanted exposure to sort of that spend and one of the most interesting ways to do that was what this concept of freight audit pay which is sort of where loop kind of started as their wedge so 
freight audit pay is, you know, as you'd imagine, going back to that Under Armour example, if I'm working with thousands of different trucking companies in a given year to get my goods from point A to point B to point C, et cetera, I have also, that means a lot of trucking invoices that are coming to me. Each of those invoices are structured differently and they have a variety of like surcharges on it. We're talking hundreds of different sort of surcharges on each invoice, about thousands. So the issue there is, it's really hard to look through those and go, am I being overcharged for fuel in this case? Should I have consolidated two of my containers together in order to ship this on one container instead of two? And I would have saved money. So both from an optimization and overcharge standpoint, there's a lot of sort of money that's lost in a given month. So some of these companies that are enterprise scale lose millions of dollars of pure margin in a given month, if not week on shipping stuff. So if I could find technology that helps me extract all the data off of these archaic PDFs, emails, you know, some some even paper files, et cetera, put them into one repository and then say, hey, here's where you should optimize. Here's where you're being overcharged. And then ultimately allow you to have this repository of your entire payable system. So think of it almost as like dull.com, but for freight and shipping. Um, there's a lot of power to that. And where this freight auto pay thing is like the wedge into that, you could then control the payment, you could do factoring loans, you could you know, you could start servicing the actual carriers themselves on the accounts receivable and payable side. So there's a lot of interesting opportunity within this space. And I think so that that's in particular why we got we gravitate towards this and, and are very excited to be working with this team. Um, so that that's that's definitely one of them. Yeah, I, I by the way, I love your idea of like investing like more like a derivative or more like an index when it's like piggybacking a certain trend that is happening. Um but I, I I think the challenge to me, like when thinking about supply chain or freight, is it's a sleepy industry. Um, during a pandemic, there's a lot of momentum of saying like, okay, we need to do something. This is not working. Um, now that trend seems to kind of pass. And also, as you said, the other challenge is the, the industry is super fragmented, so which means the go-to-market is very could be very challenging. So when you work with the Loop team or when the Loop team approach this, how do they kind of create this urgency for their end customer and how do they approach a more efficient go-to-market? It's a great question because yes, exactly as you put it, you have to make sure, and this could be a framework that we try to use in not just this investment, but all the investments we look at is, okay, there's a problem and it's a big industry, but what is the incentive? You know, as, as you kind of highlighted, there has to be an incentive somewhere or a, sort of this trigger point for someone in this value chain to want to buy a piece of software. The interesting thing with Loop is that the reason you start with shippers is because there is high incentive there. So unlike if I go to like a trucking company that might already not be that tech forward to begin with, getting them to adopt pieces of software, there are some that do it. But to your point, some will go like, ah, oh, yeah, we kind of want, we, we might benefit from software, but it's more of a secondary issue when they're trying to just make sure they have enough truck capacity optimization and they're you know, kind of working on a bunch of other stuff. The shippers are more sophisticated because when we're talking about whether you're under armor or your wayfair or your you know united healthcare what doesn't matter you send a lot of different goods on a given month and when you are losing millions of dollars margin in a given week that is definitely enough incentive to adopt software to stop doing that and so that that was sort of the key unlock in this case and why we invested them over any other company we've kind of met in the space so far because you, you have to find that wedge incentive and on the shipper side there is a very strong wedge incentive to adopt something like this and then, of course, the natural next thing is when you have a shipper pay a carrier via loop, carrier might get interested in that. And then suddenly you have this kind of interesting network effect flywheel that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you went straight to them. 
Got it, got it. Um, yeah, it definitely sounds like the team has not only found the problem, but you found the wedge into kind of solve the problem and then the key buyers in the ecosystem. Also wanted to hear, because we are kind of in a correction market environment for fintech with valuation adjusting so much. Um, how do you approach uh, risk management and how do you handle like thinking about potential investment losses or setbacks? Yeah, risk management. It's interesting, right? So setbacks for early stage startups are normal. So we have, you know, you almost think that one way is like there's this, you, I have this FAQ probably more in my head of here are all the things we've seen go wrong between zero to one, between series B to series C, between whatever different phases and whenever they come up, here's how we've triaged them in the past. So uh, there's like the, the normal, we'll call the normal core setbacks that almost every company is going to face. Um, if things continue to go poorly, as it does in venture, you might have a subset of companies that don't make it. You know, we're always going to be, we're, we definitely take more of a founder first approach. So rather than sort of start penny pinching to get money back and say, hey, you know, things aren't going well, you're going to need to sell yourselves immediately. We'll make sure they land in a good place first and that the founders are sort of ready and motivated to be sold. And we'll have that conversation with them versus, you know, sort of like forcing anything upon them. Um, so that that's probably the other thing is that, you know, we're, we're always going to say, let's optimize for the founder and then figure out sort of how do we liquidate in a fashion that makes sense for all parties. Um, so I think that's that's definitely the nature of it. And frankly, at seed and series A, it's like you have to be comfortable with some investments going to zero. Um, but I think maybe what we do to mitigate future losses is we have this we have a very strong kind of written culture here and written postmortem culture in particular. So anytime an investment goes to zero, we will the the sponsor of that deal will write all the key learnings. I think one important thing to highlight is hey, is this within the the risks that we had identified when we did this investment, was it in that bucket? Was it in sort of what we identified? And if it was sort of an expected risk and it just didn't go our way for that, it's, that's acceptable. If there was a risk that we sort of missed or a reason that we could have had this go better, then that's even more important to highlight so it doesn't happen again. So I think that's that's sort of how we think about the, the mitigation side. Got it. Um, it's great to hear you guys have a founder first approach because there's some saying like, you know, venture capitalist, for example, you have a fund and then you kind of rely upon like the top 10% to perform and then give that return. Whereas they're the probably like a bottom 50% that the VC probably cares less about. And then sometimes founders are kind of in a weird position because they're like, probably you're better off just shut it down <laughs> and then you can start a new yep. company and then the VCs are willing to invest. Um, you know, a lot of big part of our audience are MBA students or like students at Wharton or like other school ecosystem. Uh, since now we are at a more volatile time, as you, as we were just talking, do you have any advice for students who want to go into like fintech, either as an investor or as a founder? Um, do you have some advice or tips? Because I, I feel like you have to be on both sides, both the operating side and also the investor side. Yeah, it's a. Uh... Well, maybe I'll start with this. The the interesting thing is the you know again maybe more of like the the like anti buzz right. It's sort of like in in a lot of ways because the markets are the way they are right now. It creates opportunities for both people that want to get into that want to found companies and get into investing right. So on the founding side, as long as you have the financial means to get by, this is actually a phenomenal opportunity to start a company. You know, there's let's because if you think about what's happened over the last let's call it year and a half to two years. 
lots of venture dollars, lots of new funds, lots of larger funds were raised coming out of tw- the boom of 2021. And so that was a bit, you know, these, these sort of fund cycles are a bit of a lagging indicator. So most venture capitalists, that A, there's a higher end of firms right now, and B, the firms that, do, that did exist likely hire or uh, likely fundraise larger funds. So demand for particularly early stage deals is definitely there, definitely strong. Um, and at the same time, the supply side is is actually worth or is is smaller right now, I should say, because a lot of the what are called the, the tourist founders that maybe were sort of wavering, ah, should I start a company? Should I not? I don't know. And then, you know, when the markets start to go south, the, the people that are the most risk averse or less motivated, well, they've sort of hunkered back down into, you know, some of the the more established companies. So that disconnect has actually created a good opportunity for people wanting to found companies. Um, on the venture side, uh, some of the best deals, you know, I, I think, yes, there's this, the fear is like, oh, I'm new to venture. I come in, less deals are happening. How do I show progression? How do I show, you know, sort of like, you know, career development, whatever. But the nice part, it, the flip side of that is actually, if you, if you started in venture in the middle of the boom, you know, you could be almost worse shape because you, you, you've allocated a lot of dollars into companies with a significantly high sort of cost base at this point and performance has to be sort of spot on. On the flip side now, some of our best investments historically um, have come out of the recession, right? So it's like, whether it's Adyen, Datadog, et cetera, you know, companies we did at the seed, the series A, and then double down in over time. A lot of those, a lot of our best fund returners came from the era right after call it 2008 to 2010 so i actually think there's a lot of interesting opportunity despite the the doom and gloom that might be being painted right now yeah um a lot of investors are saying actually after the kind of there's a period of um correction it creates the best vintage for a venture fund um i guess but some some of the challenges could be for example like you are a founder, you've already raised a huge run probably in 2021, and then now you are thinking about potentially raising a down round. Or some people are worried that because fintech is not, not I mean, not like not, not as much the darling anymore compared to AI probably, like they worry that they won't have as high of a valuation compared to what they could get in order to build the company. What are some advice there for our founders? Well, the one, the one thing I'll say is, and I've, I've said this literally to uh, some of the founders I've worked with too. If you, if you, when you're being acquired or you're going public five years from now, no one's going to remember you raised a down round, whether like, if you raise like a down round, your series C in 2023, no one's even going to give a shit. And basically what I tell you, cause the, and it's true though, for that matter, where it's like, Yes, it might hurt up front to say like, you know, I was valuation was X. Now it's, you know, 80% of what that was. Now all that matters is survival because, you know, I think the best founders realize very quickly that the 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 end game is liquidity. And that liquidity can come in the form of an acquisition, IPO, et cetera, doesn't matter. But that that is the that is where that is what you're striving towards. You're not striving towards your next round. Survival is all that matters. So if someone's willing to give you capital to keep your business alive, that's fine. That's totally great. And like, uh, there's so many companies out there. It's not just fintech alone that are raising down rounds. And if you want to think about it differently, it's like you look at the public markets, and you know we had a bunch of companies. Fintech lost sixty percent of its market cap the first year after the downturn started. So all of those companies technically raised down rounds. If you want to think about it that way, so 
it's sort of like you got to get over the optics of it and realize that that has nothing to do with sort of the end state you're driving towards. If you have a sustainable business model that has now just been re- revalued because of the macro, it's totally fine. Uh, survival is what really matters. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's so encouraging to hear, like, um, you know, from my investor's perspective, because uh, I know a lot of um, us are definitely <laughs> care a lot about the optics cool. side of things. Um, just to wrap up, I, I, I know you are a big uh, fan of wine. Um, I know you have a blog called Pouring Over Pourings, which is a great name. <laughs> Curious to hear how you <laughs> come you. up with that. Um, I, I'm wondering, like, you know, if you have any hot takes on wine recently. I, I, I told you I recently moved to SF, so wanted to go explore Napa a little bit. Any recommendations? I know you previously provided like a recommendations of pairing Chinese food with bristling, which is super oh, yeah. entertaining. Yeah. So a- any hot takes recently you would like to share with our audience? Ooh, I mean, I have too many. You know, it's like we could do a we can do an hour long podcast on just Mark's wine takes. So it's like you know, we'll, we'll, I'll I'll try to pick out a few fun ones. Um, the you know one. Uh, well, I just had this one the other day, so it's top mind. So if you've never had. Uh, I'd consider this a classic pair, but if you've never had fried chicken with really good sort of uh, brute or, you know, like, so like the the less sweet champagne, uh, uh-huh. it's incredible. So just do that if you really? haven't. Um, it's it, the you know, fattiness from the chicken and the, the champagne sort of pair well together, super well together. Um, my favorite, uh, at least right now, my favorite sort of like, you know, I get the like, what's the best price to quantity or to quality ratio, I should say. Uh, uh, Beaujolais, which is this, um, Gamay is the grape and Beaujolais is the region in France that is predominantly known for it. I still think that's probably the best. You can get a really good bottle for 30 to $40 at their best stuff and it's incredible. And so for all of the people that love Pinot Noir, try this out. Um, and it pairs really well. I had it with like a cheeseburger the other day. That's also one that I would recommend. Um, and then my new, this is, this is in the realm of the Chinese food and Riesling thing. I tried this for the first time maybe two weeks ago. So this was interesting uh rosé uh like a bandol or a french rosé and indian food which was quite good because um you know historically i'd paired indian food with uh rieslings same reason i did chinese food a lot of it's so heavy spice it could be if there's heat uh the reasoning sort of is will not overpower food like that but the rosés are actually interesting because it gives a little more depth and, and tannin to the wine but still does not overpower like a redwood um, because if you, if you eat a lot of spicy food and you have wine with too high of an alcohol content, it sort of blows it out. It blows your palate out of proportion. So that's my new fun one is, uh, try rosé and Indian food. That was good. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of Bourjolais. So I trust a hundred percent. We just <laughs> recommend it. It is such a great wine. Like it's such, it's so easy. Like you go to a wine bar, yeah. like you say cheeseburger, like <laughs> just like so easy. Like you can drink it all on your own. Um, and I love that you always find pairings that are like so unconventional. Because um, I was taking my sommelier class, and uh, like the first wine pairing class, they told us like, "Oh, Chinese food, Thai food, Indian food, hard to pair with wine." So like, just forget about it, and you just come up with like so interesting yeah. ways to kind of mix them up. Yeah, I refuse. I'm a huge fan of all three of those types of cuisines too. And whenever I get a Vertiga, I refuse to not have wine sometimes. So it's like I it eventually were forced into finding a good pairing. Uh, but those those ones worked well. That's awesome. We should do a, like a wine pairing night or something um, with other students sometimes. Oh, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Zoe.